beginning with verse 12 this morning, just by way of quickly recapping the event that had just taken place, I hope you recall, was an event that brought a great deal of fear into the hearts of all who were in Jerusalem, believers and unbelievers alike. That event was the demise, sudden demise, of Ananias and his wife Sapphira. As we looked at that passage last time, we realized that that God takes things very seriously, and especially when He starts a new work, which He has just done, God wants to emphasize the need for strict obedience to Himself. And belief in what God has done through Christ is part of that which we are obligated to do in our effort to obey the commands of God. Jesus Himself said, The commandments that I give are these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus had said, These both fulfill, complete, all of the law and the prophets. But He also said, which love one another. And that's something that we need to take in mind as well. And in loving one another, we need to then be willing to serve one another. We need to be willing to bear each other's burdens. We need to be willing to conduct in a very, very Christian way that's outlined for us in the Word of God as the body of Christ, our relationships with one another, in a way that the world will see and desire to know more about. That's how we shine the light. That's how we present the truth of God's Word to those who are not familiar with that which we believe. They need to see that love in us in order for them to be attracted to the Word of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what God has been doing in the church from the very beginning. So Ananias and Sapphira made a mistake. More than that, they sinned greatly because they had been disobedient. They had been rebellious. They chose to tell an untruth before the Lord. Seems like such a very insignificant thing. But remember, we're talking about God. And God's standards are not my standards, they're not your standards, they're His alone. And we need to abide by those standards. So we need to take really very carefully what we have looked at last week in those first few verses of chapter 5. Now we move on in chapter 5 to the rest of what is going on in that particular time in which the early church has been founded and the apostles... Peter in particular, had been daily proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the temple. And I'm glad we sang that song this morning talking about the Holy of Holies. It dawned on me, not all that long ago, how much of an impact the resurrection of Christ would have had with regard to the things that go on in the temple grounds. You remember that when Jesus was raised from the dead, Matthew records that the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the outside courts was a very thick curtain. And inside the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could enter once a year. Yom Kippur. 
And by the way, that's what the Jews are celebrating right now. That one day of atonement, that day that was set aside by the Lord for the Jewish people to come into Jerusalem. And it was the only time of all the feasts that are mentioned in the Old Testament where instead of a festival, they were to turn inwardly and examine themselves. It was a time of repentance. It was a time of coming to the Lord for His forgiveness, knowing that that particular feast was centered around God's willing to atone for their sins if they would come to Him by faith and receive that which He offered through the sacrifice of that one lamb that was sacrificed for that particular, particular purpose on that particular day of every year. The blood that was shed by that sacrificial lamb was brought into the Holy of Holies once a year by the high priest, and only he could enter in, and he would sprinkle that blood of that sacrificial lamb onto the mercy seat. Well, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they kind of had a problem because that great curtain that had separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place and the outer courts was torn in two from the top to the bottom. That was not done by man. That was done by the Lord. It was for the purpose of letting everyone know that the entrance into the holy place, the holy of holies, that holiest of places in all of the earth, was now available to all through the shed blood of Jesus Christ our atoning sacrifice, our sacrificial lamb, our substitute. That was what he had accomplished in his resurrection by being raised from the dead. God approved of that sacrifice that he made on the cross for all mankind. So the writer of Hebrews tells us very clearly that Christ was offered once for all. There's no more need for a yearly sacrifice. The Jews don't know that. They still attempt to observe some form of recognition of this day being a very holy day for them as a way for them to come to the Lord in repentance and seek that atoning work of God in their lives. They can't offer sacrifices now. They do it differently. They don't believe that there's any need for offering up a sacrifice, at least those who aren't completely Orthodox Jews. There are some of those who do want to have the temple rebuilt and to have that service of sacrificing, sacrificing the lambs and, uh, and all of the other sacrificial uh, procedures that were outlined for them in the Word of God. Some do want that back, not all. But the point of that is, the temple in This time that we are looking at in the writing of this book of Acts, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that curtain had been ripped from top to bottom, and the people could actually look into from the outer court and from the inner court towards the altar and see that the Holy of Holies was now open to them in clear view. They had never, ever known this before. That's remarkable. And Peter and all of the apostles were daily gathering in the temple, in the place within the inner court known as Solomon's porch. And they were teaching the people, and they were again in clear sight of what God had done. I don't know if they were ever able 
to repair that curtain. They probably did, and they probably got it back up, and things were probably back to normal as far as they were concerned after a short time. We're not told. But in those early days of the church, it was there to see. Now, of course, the mercy seat had probably been probably been taken out of that Holy of Holies long before. Nobody really knows where that Ark of the Covenant is. It was purported to have been taken out of the Holy of Holies before the Babylonian captivity took place in 586 B.C. So all that might have been in that Holy of Holies would possibly be the candelabra, the menorah, and the table of showbread. Regardless, it was lacking something. And they could see that it was lacking something. And it must have been terrible for the priests to have seen that empty room, wide open, when it once was so, so very limited to only one person and once every year by that one individual. That's the setting in which the apostles had been proclaiming the risen Savior, the resurrection of Christ, in that temple area. And verse 12 of chapter 5 continues that story. They're back there doing the same thing that they did when they first were filled with the Holy Spirit. They went into the temple daily, to proclaim these things. And verse 12 continues the story about the wonderful things that God was doing, but also a continuation of persecution that was resulting in their doing what they knew they had to do. Verse 12 says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord, that should be a familiar phrase by now. We've seen it several times already in the book of Acts. With one accord, they were unified in their belief. They were unified in their love for one another. They were unified in their faith in what God had done. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Again, that's in the inner court where they could see clearly the open entrance into the Holy of Holies. Verse 13 says, Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. First mention of women actually being brought into faith. It doesn't usually mention women in that context. But it does here, and I'm glad that it does, because in that culture, women were not considered to be all that important except for a few purposes that they accepted, but they didn't really think of women as being, well, worthy of honor in any way. But Luke tells us that women were being saved as well as men. They come in multitudes. Large numbers of people were coming to faith. But take note again, though, it says, none of the rest did join them. There were some who were fearful and likely because of what had just taken place when the news had spread about Ananias and Sapphira. So it's very likely that 
that news caused a great deal of fear, as it is said in this passage that we looked at last time. But there were still a multitude of people coming to faith. The rest didn't want anything to do with it because, well, after all, if God's going to wipe out people so quickly, then it costs something. And maybe they weren't willing to pay the price. You know, fun, funny thing about Christianity today, there's hardly any mention of the cost involved in coming to Christ. Not in this country. But take a look around at the various places in the world where the church is being persecuted. And there is a cost to many people, even to the point of death. That was how it was in that day in Jerusalem. But there were many still who came. Regardless of that, they were willing to be martyrs for Christ. The word martyrion is a Greek word that we transliterate to martyr. And it's used here as mentioning those who were being saved. So he says in verse 14, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least a shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Now that almost sounds a little bit superstitious, doesn't it? And it really was. They just made the assumption that perhaps if they were to be laying on the sidewalk, if there were any in that day, and Peter's shadow might have been cast over them as he walked by, that that would be a means by which they could be delivered from their infirmity. It's not much different from the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. Remember the story in, in the Gospel record where, where she was trying so desperately to get close enough to Jesus and she thought, if I could only touch the hem of His garment, I know that I will be healed. And she made it through the crowd and she did touch the hem of her, His garment. And she was instantly healed. Now that was not something that you would think was necessarily correct in her understanding but her faith was in that which she believed would be the result if she could only accomplish that which she had sought. And Jesus honored that. Remember, Jesus stopped as they were walking. He came to a complete stop, turned around and said, Who touched me? Well, the disciples around him said, Hey, there's a crowd here. Everybody's touching you. What do you mean, who touched me? And Jesus said, I felt power come from me. And he knew that there was somebody. And I don't think it was because he didn't know who it was. But he wanted her to admit, I'm the one that did that. Jesus allowed her to be healed. In spite of the misdirected idea that she had of how that healing could take place. Just the same way here with these who thought that perhaps the shadow of Peter's passing by would be enough. It was a means of faith in something that they didn't understand, but they believed that it might be so. Now, we're not told that they were healed, but we're told that's what they believed might be the case. However, there were many who were being healed, and this is what Luke tells us next. Next. 
In verse 16 also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities of Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they all were healed. Now they're brought to the disciples, to the apostles, and there are many from outlying communities. This is the first mention of people from outside of Jerusalem coming to faith in Christ. They were coming and they were being healed and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. They were being filled with His presence in their lives. They were being saved. All of them. They were many of them. Whatever the sickness might have been. There were those who were tormented by unclean spirits. They all were healed. This is a a a remarkable time of great things happening in the church in its early days. It continued for a season. Now, frankly, there are some who believe that all of that stopped at the end of the first century. They call it the apostolic age. That nowhere is there any reason for people to expect that God does any of this today. To that I say, hogwash. Plainly spoken. It's a lie. It's a deceptive thing. Because God still is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And those gifts were not stopped at the end of the first century. There's no reason to believe that. Historically, you find many, many examples. And yes, it is true that there are many who proclaim themselves to be healers and using the name of Jesus and promote their ministries as a healing ministry. And a lot of that is indeed hogwash. But much of it is valid. I submit to you that those who do this for a ministry are in it for one other reason, and that would be money or recognition. They're counterfeit. But when there is a counterfeit, there must also be a reality, a truth. Counterfeit is a lie. It's the opposite of the truth. And if the counterfeit is present, then there must also be the reality. And I believe that God does heal today. I believe that He does work miracles today. I pray for those who are sick, expecting that God is able and willing to do that which we ask. And I think that we should always do that. And I have seen those things. I've witnessed the power of God in the healing of those who come to Him by faith. Not always. Sometimes He doesn't heal. That's His prerogative. But I do believe it's right for us to expect by faith that God will do what we ask Him to do where it comes to the healing of the sick. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it if He chooses not to, but I want to continue to lift up those who are sick and ask God to do what I know He is able and willing to do. Verse 17 says, And the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, remember them? They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in a spiritual realm. They accept the first five books of the Bible in a very legalistic way, the letter of the law exclusively and not the spirit. 
of the law, they were not willing to accept what was going on in Jerusalem. It was interfering with their prosperity that they had once had among the people, the recognition that they had once had. They were jealous. They were offended by what was going on, by what was being spoken. The high priest, remember, this would be Caiaphas, or it could have been Annas, his son-in-law. Caiaphas was recognized by the Jews as the high priest. He had been taken out of that position by the Roman government, and Annas, his son-in-law, was put in place by Rome. He was despised by the people. He was a crook. At least Caiaphas was a man that they thought they could trust. But in any case, we're seeing here that the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, and they were filled with indignation. They were jealous. Some of your translations use the word jealous, and I think that's a good translation. And he says in verse 18, they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. We don't know if it's all twelve of the apostles, but it just says the apostles. Whoever was there at that particular time were brought into the prison. Again, this is a second imprisonment of at least some of, if not all of, the apostles. Verse 19 says, But at night, the prison guards let them out. Well, my Bible says an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. This is a remarkable miracle. Again, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. Make a mental note of that. The doors were opened by the angel of the Lord. He let them out of the prison. He brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Be bold to proclaim the truth. All the words of this life. Don't hold back on everything you know. Let them be made aware of all the words of this life. That's a command to us. That's something that we need to take very, very seriously. We need to know the Word well enough to convey that truth to others who might hear it, who might be interested in knowing what it is that we believe. Peter tells us that we should be prepared for such a thing, that people will come and ask us, and we should be prepared to explain to them why we believe what we believe. Tell all the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. They weren't afraid. Or if they were afraid, they were able to overcome their fear because they knew that they were doing what was right. What was expected of them was what they would be willing to do, no matter what the cost. That's pretty bold. That's amazing, considering what they once had been just a few months prior to this. Remember, when Jesus was crucified, they were hiding. They were fearful for their lives. Something changed. Something happened. A great miracle had taken place in their hearts, in their commitment to serving God for all that they are able, 
in every single day of their lives, they had committed themselves no matter what the cost. They were willing to be martyred for their faith. They stood in the temple knowing that they had already been arrested twice, and yet they went right back into that very same thing. And they knew that the Pharisees had told them, you must stop proclaiming this Jesus that you're talking about. It fell on deaf ears. Why? How could they be so bold? How could they be so amazingly strong in their faith? The only answer is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and enabled them. He empowered them. And He was with them. And they knew it. And besides, when an angel comes to release you from prison in such a miraculous way, that kind of bolsters your faith, I would think. Well, as it turned out, verse 21, And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priests and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Now, they didn't know what had happened in that night. They sent for those men to be brought before them as they had done before. They wanted to do again. They wanted to threaten them and tell them they must, must never speak in this name again. That's what they had hoped to do, expected to do, but something had happened that they weren't yet aware of. In verse 22 it says, But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Look back again at what we just read regarding the angel. It said in verse 19, The angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Well, here it says the doors were shut. And not only that, but the prison guards were still there. But the tomb, the prison that they were imprisoned in, was empty. They had no explanation for that. They might have thought, well, the prison guards let them out. Well, that would be a very, very costly thing for a prison guard to have done. They were obligated to protect and to guard against any possibility of a prison break at the cost of their lives. Listen, people, this was not something that they would have allowed. Just like it was with the guards at the tomb of Jesus. When the earthquake came on that Sunday morning and the stone was rolled away, the guards were there. They were fearful and they were terrified at what had just taken place. I wonder if maybe that was the case with these men as well when they opened the prison doors and there was nobody inside. Those guards must have been very fearful. They had no idea what had taken place because somehow the angel opened the door without them being aware of it. He let them out and walked right by those guards and then shut the prison doors after they had gone out of that building and the guards did not know. I don't know how to explain that, except it was a miracle that God allowed to happen. As is the case with so many miracles, it was a supernatural event that you cannot explain any other way.
Well, that must have shaken them up a bit. In fact, as we read in verse 25, or 24 rather, Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. I imagine so. They wondered what the outcome of these things might be. I'm convinced that they were shaking in their boots over this event. And in verse 25 it says, So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are now standing in the temple and teaching the people. They went to the prison to get them. Now they're in the temple where they had been the day before doing the same thing, teaching the Word of God, teaching about the resurrection of Christ to the people in the temple from the very beginning of the day. There was no stopping these men. I wonder if that can be said of us. Wouldn't it be nice if it would be said of us there's no stopping these people? They believe so strongly in what they have learned in the Word of God that they are willing to take a stand no matter the cost. I want to be like that. I don't know that I am. I don't know that any of us are. And we probably would not be unless we had the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do so. The grace of God to enable us to do that which these men were willing to do. And all through the history of the church, we know of many people who have taken that stand. And they stand for us as great men and women of faith. I want to be like them. And if it were ever to come to that place where we were to be persecuted, as so many in the church had been in the past and are being persecuted in this present hour. Oh, may it be that each one of us would be so filled with the Holy Spirit that none of that which the world can do to us will have any impact on our willingness to serve Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and proclaim the gospel message until our very last breath, if that were what God required of us. That's what they are doing here. They knew that they were risking their very lives in going back to the temple and proceeding and continuing to preach that which they were told they must not do. Well, now, the high priests and those who were with him have a bit of a problem. They arrested them the day before. They're back in the temple proclaiming the same message. Verse 26 says, Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for truly they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. They were careful this time not to arrest violently as they had done the day before. They must have come to them and said, Hey guys, it'd be nice if you could come with us peaceably this time. We're not going to want to hurt you. We don't want to cause a stir. We just want to ask you some questions. Would you come back to the Sadducees again? and stand before them, and let us kind of a a fair exchange of words rather than having these accusations that have been flying. I, I don't know if that was how they convinced the apostles to go. But one thing I'm certain of, there was apparently no resistance. And I'm pretty convinced that the apostles knew that whatever they had in store for them, God was still in control, and God would take care of every detail of everything that had to happen because they put their trust in Him. Because God had told them to do what they were doing 
And there was no stopping them because there's no stopping God. Keep that in mind as we read further. It says, when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? You notice that he doesn't ask the question, How did you escape from the prison? He just reminds them, Look, we commanded you not to say anything more about this man that you're speaking of. Notice they don't mention his name. The word Jesus can't come from their lips. But it does from Peter's. But before we get to that, he continues and says, And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Think back. When Pilate was trying to convince the people that he didn't really want to have this man crucified, he offered Barabbas instead. But the people, led by the chief priests and elders of the Sadducees, of the Sanhedrin, they were convincing the crowd to say, Give us this man instead. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. That was their demand. Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? They couldn't really answer that. And Peter and John and all of the others who probably were in that crowd were saying, Stop this madness. But it went on and on and on until finally Pilate said, I wash my hands of the blood of this man. I find no guilt in him. And the priests at that time said, His blood be on us and on our children. And here in this passage, they're trying to convince all the apostles that the apostles are causing His blood to be on them. They had already proclaimed it to be on themselves. It's too late for them to change that. His blood was on them. As it is so with every unbeliever. But for those who believe, His blood on us is a wonderful miracle of grace. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So let His blood be on us. Not in the way that they had been proclaiming, but in the way that God intended to cover us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we were reminded this morning, we are to confess our sins. And when we do confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that that can be accomplished. So they made this accusation. But Peter says in verse 29, and the other apostles with him, they answered and said, we ought to, or in some translations, we need to, properly it is, we need to obey God rather than men. That's a bold statement, friends. Now, in the Word of God, we have certain instructions regarding, regarding those who are in authority over us. In government, the book of Romans, Paul writes very clearly that we are to obey those who rule over us. 
that God has put them in power for a purpose. Peter here is saying, I'm not going to obey this man. So which is correct? They both are. But Paul is saying, when he's talking about obeying those who have authority over you in the government that God has established, he's saying that whenever they have authority and the laws that are made, you are to be obedient to those laws, submitting yourselves to those laws, because you're in that society and you are part of that culture, then you should be willing to obey those rules within that culture. Except when those rules circumvent the law of God. And what Peter is saying here is, the law of God is what we will obey. You are asking us to do something contrary to the law of God, and we will not obey that. So the precedent is being set here that if any government tries to establish laws that contradict, that try to override the laws of God as we know them, that we are to obey, then we are to obey God and not men. There comes a time when that means civil disobedience is proper, but it's only in that condition, only in that state. Many have made the mistake of doing violent things in the name of Christ that should not have been done. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Leave that to Him and Him alone. But with regard to the obedience that Peter is here speaking of, we need to understand that this word is a word that instructs us on how we are to obey God in the way that brings glory to Him. And we need to know that word and apply it in our understanding of how we are to respond to those things that are asked of us by those who are in leadership over us. We ought to obey God rather than men. Where always and only applies to God's law as opposed to man's law. Well, Peter continues on and he says in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. They wouldn't mention his name, but Peter does gladly, proudly. Jesus, Yeshua, Hamashiach. He was proclaiming God is our salvation. Jesus, that's his name, that's what it means. Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. <laughs> oh, that's pretty daring, isn't it? He's, he's not only proclaiming that Jesus was a victim, but he's saying they were the ones who put him to death. And they were. So were you and I. But in this case, what Peter is saying is they were responsible they could have chosen a different path, but they chose that path. And it was a path of destruction. But he says in verse 31, in spite of the fact that they were responsible for his having been murdered, God has exalted him to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So what they had done 
God used in a marvelous, wonderful way to bring forgiveness of sins to all who would come by faith, who would believe, who would receive that which He has offered. Oh, people of God, this is such an important portion of Scripture because what we're seeing here is a conflict between God and godlessness. These men were religious men. These men thought they knew God's Word. And they did. But they denied the power of God's Word in their lives. They denied the possibility of God having done this which has been proclaimed and evidenced by so many because it interfered with their system. They weren't willing to open their eyes. They weren't willing to open their ears to hear. They weren't willing to soften their hearts to receive. There are so many in the world today who are just like them. Some are religious just like they were. Some are what they would consider themselves to be atheists, or at least agnostic, which means ignorant. But they did not believe. They would not receive. They would not repent. But Peter says in verse 32, we are His witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. So Peter says in verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Here in verse 32, he says the Spirit of God is given to those who obey. Simple. What does it mean to obey? It means to do His will. What is His will? To come to Him by faith. Receive the gift that He has offered, freely given. And in receiving that gift, we receive salvation. We receive multiple blessings. We receive inheritance. We receive forgiveness of sins. The freedom to live for Him, to serve Him, to do what He wills in our lives, to accomplish that which He desires. We're witnesses to these things, Peter says. You know, in a court of law, it's always good to have witnesses. There are certain kinds of witnesses that are accepted. Some are witnesses who actually saw the event. They're actual witnesses of some event that had taken place. And the judgment is made based on those witnesses. Now, in the Hebrew culture, it was always required that there be at least two witnesses, two or more witnesses, before somebody could be condemned for any action. That was a law under Moses. They adhered to that law. And it's really the basis upon which our own judicial system has been founded. But there are also circumstantial evidences that can be considered in the court of law. In the case of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, there are over 500 witnesses who saw him. That ought to be enough. If only two are required, then shouldn't 500 
be an adequate number of people to convince any court? Apparently not. But there are many uh, things that we can look at that are circumstantial. As well as the actual witnesses, we have the Word of God. The Old Testament and the New Testament Scriptures speak volumes about the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. All of that are revealed in the Old Testament prophets as well as in the New Testament writings. And there are so many verses of Scripture that any one of us can turn to. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 39, Psalm 69, Isaiah 52 again and 53. All of those things everywhere looking into it, and Malachi, looking at Jeremiah, looking at all of the others who speak of these things, Zechariah. Everywhere you look in the Old Testament, you can find reference to Jesus Christ. How could he possibly have fulfilled all of those? And he did, if he wasn't God's son. It's so plain, so simple. Psalm 135 this morning talked about idols. The idols that people make. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have hands, but they cannot handle. They have feet, but they cannot walk. Those idols are made by men. And I submit to you that men are still making idols today. It may not be a sculptured idol that they can stand in front of to worship, but there are idols in their heart that they worship. Instead of worshiping the one true God, instead of coming to that one who can save them, who can deliver them, who can redeem them, they turn to these idols and trust in them instead. Idols made by the hands of men or idols that are existing in the minds of men, corrupt them and turn them from the true God who wants so much for them to come by faith. It's not God's will that any should perish, Peter tells us, but they all should come to faith in Christ Jesus. Peter again in verse 32 says, we are witness of these things. You and I, our witness as well. Because what we know, if we are believers in Christ, that the Holy Spirit is revealed to us, is true. It cannot be denied. But those who are willing to turn their ears and their eyes from these truths, who have hardened their hearts and will not believe, their consciences are seared. God help them. Lastly, in this passage of Scripture that we're reading this morning, we have an individual who is not a Sadducee, he's a Pharisee. His name is Gamaliel. Gamaliel is a man who is really, really highly esteemed in Israel. He's one of the rabbans, the individuals who are known as rabbis, who are recognized in a very special way. The word rabban was attributed to only a handful of individuals throughout the history of the Jews. It was an honorable statement that the people of God made with regard to this individual. 
Paul tells us that he himself sat under the feet of Gamaliel. He learned from him. According to Josephus, Paul the Apostle, known then as Saul of Tarsus, was a man that Gamaliel had brought up and was amazed at the amount of ability this individual named Saul of Tarsus had with regard to the handling of the Word of God. He was overwhelmed by the fact that he couldn't keep books enough to satisfy the hunger of the Apostle Paul, ultimately, and this man named Saul at that time. This is the same Gamaliel that is now standing with the Sadducees in this setting, confronting Peter and all of the other apostles, and he is saying something that is of great importance. He says in verse 33, When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them, the apostles. They wanted them dead, just like they wanted Jesus dead. But, verse 34 says, Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles aside for a little while. He wanted to take talk to the Sadducees, the rest of the Sanhedrin, privately. Put these men aside so that we can discuss this. Interesting to note that the only reason we have a record of this is likely because Saul of Tarsus was either there or heard it directly from Gamaliel later. Nonetheless, it says in verse 35, he said to them, men of Israel, Take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. He's defending the apostles here. He says, For some time ago, Seudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. And he was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And after this, man, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. Now that really is not necessarily true. There are many, many cases throughout man's history where you could say these were followers of men and they weren't stopped as these two examples were stopped. But what he says next is of great importance. In verse 39 he says, But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. What a terrible thought that is. Can you imagine spending your whole life fighting against God? Some people do, you know. Even today. There are many who are fighting against God. People you know. People you work with. Neighbors of yours. Even members of your own family. Fighting against God. Because they refuse to accept the Word of God. But here, Gamaliel is saying a very, very profound truth. If this is of God, and it is, you cannot overthrow it. And they could not. Jesus had said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Those are precisely the thoughts that Jesus had in mind. The same is what Gamaliel is here saying. You cannot stop this if it is from God. And it is from God, therefore you cannot stop it. 
Verse 40 says, And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Interesting. They agreed with Gamaliel. You can't stop this. Don't do them any harm. And they said, yeah, okay, you're right. So they take the apostles back in and they beat them. How fair is that? They just figured they had to have some kind of benefit out of this meeting that they were so embarrassed by. And that the only way they could get any pleasure out of that was beating the brains out of these men. There are a lot of people like that today. They want to destroy. They want to do as much damage as they can. But Jesus had warned, that's what they're going to try to do. But do not fear them, for they can't do you any harm beyond physical harm. They can kill your body, but they can't destroy your soul. That is the word that comes from Jesus' own lips. And it is a word that you and I must be very, very careful to remember if we should ever have that situation develop in our lives where we face that kind of threat. May it be so. By the grace of God, it would be. So verse 41 says, They departed from the presence of the council, and they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Think about that. They weren't complaining, Lord, why did you let that happen to me? Look, I'm bleeding. My back is torn apart. Lord, why did that happen? What is going on? What is this all about? Why am I having to suffer? But they didn't. They said they were rejoicing that they could suffer in the name of and for the name of Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle says that it was his desire to know Jesus and the fellowship of His resurrection, the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. Paul embraced the idea of being willing to even suffer for Christ physically. And oh, did he ever suffer. Friends, We're blessed to live in the United States of America where we have freedom to worship. All religions have that freedom, not just Christianity. But it seems to me that there's a focus these last several years that is now turning against that very thing. And I believe that persecution may very well be on our horizon. It may be coming to a theater near you If it does, may it be that you and I would have that kind of wonderful love for God and trust in God that we could say the same thing. I rejoice that you have allowed me to suffer for the name of Christ. May it be so for each one of us. And if we do, then we can be like them. Everything that we do will bring glory and honor to Him. Verse 42, lastly, it says, And that daily, daily in the temple and in every house, wherever they were, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. My friends, that is how I want this church to shine for Christ in these last days. 
Oh, may it be so. And let the Spirit of God move mightily in our midst so that we can engage those who would be so against us as to even threaten our very lives. For the name of Christ, let us stand in faith, in victory.